Come on around back, Arizona, Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour of Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. Second Saturday of the month, talking trees this year. Going to actually change it up a little bit next year, but we'll get into that uh, when we get there in January. Today, if you're following along in our homeowner handbook, you know we're talking about winter pruning deciduous trees, and the Texas ebony is our tree of the month. And if you don't receive our free homeowner handbook, calendar, and referral network directory, it's uh, something we mail out for free. You can just go to rosieonthehouse.com, click on the contact us, let us know the address you'd like it mailed to, and we'll get you on the list. It's actually, uh, the list is getting sent to the printing company on Tuesday. And you'll get 2024. You can also hit the e-store tab on our website and sign up for it for free through our Shopify account that verifies the address. Yes, believe it or not, people send us wrong addresses. They get the street addresses typed backwards or they're on their iPad or phone and it doesn't transpire through. So if you do it on the Shopify, it actually will verify and accept the address and verify it so you know you'll get added to it. But we've got... Uh, the Texas Ebony is our tree of the month. Justin Ronner from Agriscaping is in studio with us. Good morning, sir. This is uh, this is one of my favorite trees. For you color. like this tree? I, I do. You know, I, I tend to learn it and grow and, uh, I guess, grow my love for trees the more I learn about them. The more I learn about what they can do, the benefits of them. I, I don't think I've ever found a tree I didn't like, so... There's always something good about it. So you all you you get mostly positivity out of me, unless you got a root coming up from my neighbor's tree, you know, under my wall, you know, something like that. What's uh? Well, what was the one we had to cut down at Hayden, a silk oak? I I I think we might argue with you on the silk oak one. The silk oak. Well, there's some benefits of that one, but we'd get into that. You got to have the right lot size for a silver oak, I think, and uh, you know, and that's kind of the thing. You got to find the right tree that fits your space. And the look that you're looking for, you know, you got to be a lot more choosy as you get smaller spaces. And the Texas ebony tree, if you like the desert kind of look, you want something evergreen, this might be a good tree for you. Because it does have a nice, dense, it's very slow growing, so it's not something that's going to just take off. It's not a huge shade tree. I mean, it can grow 30 to 40 feet tall, but it's going to take you a few decades to get to that. And uh, it's, but it smells, one of the best smelling trees out there when that thing blooms, and that might be part of the reason you like that one, Romy, I don't know. You know, I don't know if I've ever noticed the scent so much as the evergreen part of it. Yeah. It, it, the, the rich green color of the Texas ebony tree, and you get it year round, I, I think that's what I like about it. And it, it is beautiful. And it, it, I don't it, like pruning it. You don't like pruning it. It's not a fun one to prune because it's a hardwood tree. It's, it's one of the only, it might be the only exotic hardwood tree that grows in America. And, uh, and it, it's not the true ebony, like the old school ebony, that uh, kind of from ancient woods and stuff like that, exotic wood. That stuff mostly is illegal now because they've become endangered. But the Texas ebony tree that grows right here in Arizona, I mean, it's originated in Texas, goes into kind of eastern part, uh, northeast uh, part of Mexico. So it, it definitely is very adaptable here in Arizona, especially the desert southwest. But it's, it's a tree, very good hardwood. You know, I got a brother-in-law loves to do wood turning, and that is a wood that he would love to have, making like nice wood bowls, very, very solid, very hard, though. You'll go through a lot of 
chiseling devices. Uh, Got to sharpen them a lot to get those things to carve right. So it's a beautiful wood. I mean, it is beautiful. The the bean colors that grow on these trees are a, a little bit of a reflection of the dark wood that's inside that the tree. And so very beautiful. So it's got some utility to it too. Uh, and that dark green, the dark green foliage in the wintertime, I mean, it's a, it's a dark, vibrant green, whereas a lot of the other desert trees aren't so vibrant, especially in the wintertime. And one of the big reasons, aside from the hardness of the wood, but the thorns. I mean, yeah. You get a mesquite tree, you can see the thorns on it. The Texas ebony ones, you, they're tiny and small, tiny. but there's thousands of them. Yep. They're hiding right at the <laughs> nook of where those leaves grow out. And it's got little leaves. It's a lot of high density, little tiny leaves, but very beautiful green color. And, and it's got a lot of contorted branching. You know, and that's another beautiful thing about this tree. I mean, it's a tree that many people, I mean, one of my favorite uses of it is actually as a bonsai tree because oh. they grow so slow. It's evergreen and they've got these contorted branches. So you can get a very beautiful looking tree in a very small shape with uh, the Texas ebony. But obviously out in the desert, out where we can find and grow it, uh, you know, in our landscapes and stuff, you know, it definitely can grow to a larger tree. Just again, it takes takes decades. Slow grower. And your concept of agriscaping is elegant edible landscaping. Is this one that has edibles? You'd mentioned a bean. Yes. So this one does have a bean. And uh, thanks to my friend Cactus Kelly, Kelly Athena, she she's reminded me that this is a, a wonderful edible uh, bean. It tastes kind of like a peanut. Like peanuts. I like peanuts too, even though I'm a little allergic to them, but I'm not allergic to this one. So if you're allergic to peanuts and you still want that peanutty flavor, this might be something that'd be good for you. But it is a labor of love. I don't know anybody commercially that produces something with it, which would be great because it's a little rough to get into. You got to take that that pod. I mean, that's a big brown pod. You, you need a hammer to crack the thing open. And once you crack it open, you got these seeds inside, uh, you know, these beans that have a really tough husk on it. And the only way to really get that husk off, because you can't digest it, you know, it's a, it's three times thicker than those Mexican, uh, the Mexican uh, little beans that we eat a lot. The Man, I, we were just talking about it earlier, and I'm, I'm totally forgetting, losing my mind. The little peanuts, the Mexican peanuts have those little brown husks. So three times thicker than that, you got to boil it to, to even be able to peel that husk off of the bean, and then you got to roast them. So that they're more palatable because they're kind of chewy otherwise. You want to make them a little more crisp so you can really crunch it and, you know, eat it like a wonderful bean. Uh, but it's it's great. Once you get to it, it's a, a wonderful, very edible, uh, very delectable bean inside of that plant. The Texas ebony, our tree of the month. And uh, size-wise, you'd said a bonsai tree. So I'm picturing I don't need a lot of space for this. But you also said after a couple decades, it could be... 30 feet tall. That's right. It can be a 30 to 40 foot tree if you give it enough space. And, and it really grows about as tall as it does wide. And so you just think of that in terms of its space. Its root structure is going to be very similar to its canopy size, unless you're bonsai in it, of course. And it's something that um, it'd be more multi-trunked. So usually it's treated not as a single stock with the canopy. It's going to have multi-trunks. I mean, it's a beautiful specimen. Again, with that contorted branching, I would recommend leaving no more than about five branches off the base. If you're if you're growing it about a foot off the ground, I'll leave about five branches. More than that, it starts getting so dense in its canopy that you, it's really hard to maintain, and it can be so clustered inside that uh, even the birds won't nest in it. 
but uh, it is one that is great for birds, great for nesting birds with all those thorns. I mean, hey, what, what's going to go up there and eat eat its eggs when it can't get in there? There's too many thorns. So it is a very protective tree. So it does attract a lot of great desert birds and for nesting, especially different types of doves that we have out here. Uh, I've even seen some lovebirds that have set up nesting colonies inside of uh, these Texas ebonies, the bigger ones, um, because of their density. And so it's 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 a really cool tree. And it's flower, kind of a white, creamy color, little fairy duster kind of looking little flower on it that turns a little bit brown as it gets older. But it does have a, a nice, sweet, flowery scent. Uh, and you can smell it anywhere within 20 feet of that tree when it's blooming. It's It's got a nice smell to it. And when is its bloom cycle? Is that a spring bloom? It's a spring bloomer. and uh, But it's, it's one of those that can bloom throughout the year. And you can find bean pods almost all on them almost all the time. I mean, because they'll stay on the tree a really long time, and it's a uh, it's a it's a good one. Now, so the Texas I mean, that's is desert adaptive, but it's not uh, native Arizona. It came over from Texas Southwest Correct. and kind of made its way in the Sonoran Desert. You, you need like three specific plants to truly be defined as as a Sonoran Desert. And it's the, I think it's a saguaro, palo verde, and one more I'm missing. Well, it's actually on the tree side. Saguaro is definitely one that you want to see in there, but you've got the mesquite, you've got the palo verde, and then you've got the ironwood. And those three are kind of the anchor trees in, in your Sonoran desert landscape. So those three, and, and, and all three of those have great edible qualities. I mean, these are ones that not only does the flora, you know, does the fauna out there love to eat it, it's also something that for the Native Americans were traditional food sources in, in all three of those trees. And uh, Richard Atkins has brought us ironwood beans before when he came in for a broadcast. We've had the mesquite be, uh, beans, Farmer Greg's Mill. What about Palo Verde? I don't know that I've ever had any edible off of a Palo Verde. So Palo Verde, my favorite time to eat them is when they're really green. They haven't dried out at all, and you actually eat them more like a pea. And they, you can just pop them right in your mouth, right off of the tree, and they definitely taste more like a pea than any of the other desert ones. It's kind of... Little bit of a aromatic kind of flavor to it, a little more than a bean than a, than a pea, but I love them. I mean, they're great just straight off the tree, just pop the little pods open, little green, and make sure that they're still green. Green is when they're the best, but about the size of a, a pea, and you'll kind of see the little pea pods, you'll see them kind of formed. That's my favorite time to eat them. Hmm. I wonder why we haven't talked about Palo Verdes as an edible before because that's the least amount of work. All these other ones you're talking about, the, you need a hammer for the <laughs> Texas Ebony to get to it. You know, you got to have a special mill for the uh, mesquite for the flour grinder. You've got uh, the ironwoods, a, a boiling process. But yep. the Palo Verde just Palo straight Verde, off the tree? Straight off the tree. That That is, I've got two of them and they're they're on little walkways. I got two in my front yard. They're, one's on my way to one garage and the other's on my way to the sheep pen. And so whenever they're they're in season, I'm just popping one off the tree and and snacking on those peas. I love areas where they have a bunch of them, and you know you get that spring, and everything's just this canopy of yellow. But it's yeah. also like, oh no, here comes the heat. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a good indicator heat's on its way, and it, it, that one's one that you don't want to put around a pool. Whereas you know this Texas ebony, it it. It's an evergreen, and it holds its leaves a really long time. And and I like it for that because it's the least trashy underneath it. You know, it's a lot easier to clean up underneath it, whereas a mesquite tree, though it's mostly evergreen, that thing's dropping stuff all the time. <laughs> and so that's one of the downsides, but there's obviously a lot of upsides. It grew, You know, mesquite grows really fast. Texas ebony, really slow. 
If you'd like to join the conversation about your landscape and garden, one 767 4348 That's 1-888-ROSIE for you. Our text questions can be sent to 411-923. I guess you know that trees are the best networkers, right? That's because they're always ready to branch out. <laughs> Branching out. That's what we're doing today, right? We're branching out and trimming some of those branches this time of year. There are a few things that we want to be doing and some things that we want to hold off on still. And we try and time it seasonally just based on, uh, you know, the time of the year. But uh, we we may be a little early for some of the trimming yet as uh, the, the, the winter kicked in, hasn't quite kicked in yet. Yeah, it's it's it stayed warmer longer, uh, and, and not like really hot. I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, but we're not hitting you know our highs you know in the 80s still. And a couple days this past week and stuff, breaking records for warmth. But you know, no one's complaining. But you notice a difference on your trees. They're still some of them are still growing quite well. I mean, we've seen citrus trees reblooming. And we got clients calling in saying, why is my tree reblooming again? What's going on? You know, it's a little confused because uh, we went down cold for a week and then we came back up. So it and we got new growth that's growing on things. So for me right now, if I'm looking at citrus trees, the trees that I'll be trimming um, this time of year, uh, I'm going to be trimming mainly just for shape. And I'm going to be careful not to trim back too much because with citrus trees, because they're evergreen, um, when it gets really cold, we want some protection. We want some cover, but we want a dense cover in order to protect it from any really cold temperatures, potential freezing temperatures, because we do get pockets of freezing here in the, you know, the desert Southwest. And so you want to be mindful of that. You know, those, uh, the flyaway branches are the ones that are likely best to be trimmed because those are going to freeze off likely anyway. And if you can dense, you know, bring the density back down, maybe hope to, it, it, with this warmth we're having, it could actually grow a couple new little branches, branches or sprouts to add a little more density to the tree will be, really help the health of that tree. And it's, um, yeah, there's a lot of things. I mean, with the, the deciduous trees, that's another thing. We haven't started trimming any of those yet. So I would hold off now because most of them still got their leaves. <laughs> and you don't want to trim a deciduous tree when it's still got all of its leaves on it. That's the wrong time. You got to let it store up all of its energy more into the core of the tree, which happens as the leaves fall. And until that happens, you don't want to trim it. And it's funny because usually by this time, most of my mulberry leaves are gone and we wrap Christmas lights through the branches and everything. It's still all there. It's still all there. <laughs> yeah, and they're not – I mean, we've had – I've seen most of the colors starting to show up on our color-producing, you know, fall trees. Just started showing up really – I just started noticing it this week. And so it, we're just at the beginning. I mean, in, in some calendars I've been looking at, we're almost a month and a half behind the typical shift in our tree habit. A uh, month and a half. I mean, so it's it's an interesting year. And, and I'm not, again, I'm not complaining. It's beautiful. It's totally beautiful. But we're not getting as, as deeply cold or as consistently cold as it seems we have in past years. Now, I don't know if it's just me, but it's a couple times I have gone and done, you know, turned on the water on deciduous trees. We've got ash, mulberry, pecan, and uh, red push pistache. And it seems like after a deep watering, if the temperature's just right, like the next day, it just completely sheds everything. Like <laughs> I got all the water stored up, great, shed off the leaves. 
So it can do that. It definitely creates an ambient humidity that uh, lowers the temperature in that area. So there's kind of two things in effect because there's two ways to get a tree to kind of go into dormancy. So you're talking about one. There's a way that you can kind of cool the ambient air around it, causing it to to fall and kind of think that it's in it's in a deeper uh, deeper winter state. The other way to get it to kind of go dormant a little quicker is actually shut off the water. And so we've done that as well. You can shut off the water and it's like, oh, I guess we got to store up. And so it's already, you know, do a water and then just shut it off for the next week or two. And that's another way to kind of kind of move it along a little bit quicker. Now, some people do that to try to increase the amount of production on their fruit trees the following year for those that have fruit trees, like your peaches, your apricots, any of those stone fruits. And that's a possibility. I, I don't think it's fully conclusive on the data yet on if that technique actually does increase fruit yields, but I've seen people do that in order to try to enhance that. Now, I do know if, it, if you've have got a tree that doesn't actually go dormant, that you want to produce fruit, like some varieties, of, some hybrid varieties of, of plums and pluots and things like that, that's about the only way to force it to produce fruit for you. And so it does increase its yield on ones that are borderline at, you know, in, in the right zone when it comes to your trees and getting enough frost hours. There's some things that you can do to get those that are borderline to produce more fruit for you. Cherry trees, for instance, will do that. You can even throw ice around the base. I've seen people do that. You have a big party. You got a big cooler full of ice. <laughs> Pour the ice around your tree at the base, your deciduous trees, especially your cherry trees, or ones that have higher um, frost requirements and it does have the same effect as additional chill hours and that can be useful for your tree in increasing production and if you have you know citrus or stone fruits you know something that you're trying to get production on trimming can be a way to increase production you think well i gotta have more branches absolutely more but uh if you cut it back you can have you may not get as many but you'll get bigger of of the production also true. So it's it's a matter of, and it depends on the type. It's like uh, with orange trees and citrus trees, you don't have to worry about that. But with your deciduous type stuff, you know, you want a larger fruit. It's more about not so much the pruning for me. I mean, pruning will give me more quantity if I can break it down and prune it so that I've got more fruiting ends. And it's usually that second to third year wood is going to be what's going to produce the flower bud and produce your fruit. And so you want to make sure not to cut off previous year's wood if you want fruit production. So kind of two things to keep in mind as you're pruning the tree to ensure you you get what you want. Justin Ronner, Agriscaping in studio with us. We've got a lot more to cover. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after Bottom of the Hour News. weather like this like you said no one's complaining and there really isn't anything we can't be doing in our landscaping yards right now right you get out and get planting there's there's a still a lot of cool things you can plant a lot of things you can do if you want to be in it or just enjoy it you know just be out there in it i mean hopefully you're you're getting outdoors this time of year and george is out in his landscape wants to talk about citrus good morning sir uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, one 767 4348 one rosie for you Good morning, George. Good morning. I don't know if you remember me, but I met you at a Poland uh, gathering before the pandemic, you and your dad, before his accident. 
Well, thanks for sticking with us and okay. calling in this morning. Okay, back in Pennsylvania, I, I grafted five apple trees to one. Can I do that same thing with a citrus tree? Good question. So I, they call it a cocktail tree. So, cocktail trees, yeah. And, and go through the grafting because all of our fruit trees, whether it's citrus or stone fruits, they're not seed grown. They're grafted. Correct. And most of them, if you're going to be grafting, most of them already are grafted. And so if you're going to be grafting onto a tree, I recommend that you graft your, your little scion onto a section lower on the tree where it's a little closer to the the root stock because it's usually a sour orange root stock and it depends on which family. So we recommend that you're only grafting things that are in a similar family. So grapefruits on grapefruit trees, lemons on lemon trees, different types like that. But you can still do things. Um, so let me go through a list. So I can put a grapefruit on an orange stock and on and other varieties of oranges, mandarins can all be on the same type of stock. But if I'm going to be doing a lemon, a lime, or a calamondin, I'm going to need that on a totally different type of stock. So there's a trifoliate and there's a sour orange root stocks. And so they, they each have kind of their categories of what they tend to grow best with. And that's kind of what I would recommend. But it's totally possible. I mean, we've seen up to, I mean, you can still do it across a lot of other things or even a, a citron base. That's another base that some people are growing out there. And with a citron base, you can grow even things like a Buddha's hand lemon. I mean, you can graft a Buddha hand lemon onto that. Most people we see, though, have those as seedling-grown types, and those seem to be most vibrant. So absolutely, you can create a cocktail tree of your own. Highly recommend you connect with some of the resources out here, a lot of the different garden clubs. You can check out our agriscaping education stuff online and see if you can get in when they do the, the scion exchanges, and you can get into those. Because at those scion exchanges, you'll have the people that have real good experience on doing the graphs, and they can show you how to do it. And from my understanding, you know, they've been all, – all the trees production-wise out here, it's been like 100 years that they've been grafting the trees. And yeah. That, you know, it's nothing new. It's not – we don't have seed that we plant and grow. But we're taking a, a root stock that does well in the desert and we're marrying it up to a production of something that we actually like to eat. Correct. Not and like a, you know, because the sour orange stock does great, but you don't want to eat a sour orange. So then you put your navel orange onto the root of a sour orange. That's root system does great in the desert. And then you've got the great production that is something we actually want to consume. Yes. And, and a scion, for those that are new to that term, a scion is basically a little piece of a branch that's got a little bit of budding to it that is from a desired fruiting tree. And so you take that little scion, you take that little branch, and you're able to essentially graft it and, and surgically attach it to another tree that's already growing. And then from that, as it buds out, we use like a nice little wax tape and some sealants and stuff that we can use to keep it attached to that tree. As, as that tree then starts growing from the new source, you know, this new appendage, then the fruit can then grow onto that, that new branch. And it, you, you want to be careful with those too and, and be very attentive to exactly where you grafted to remind yourself, you know, mark it, label it, so that you can really care for that little component and trim anything else around it from growing so that all the nutrients from that section of that tree is growing that new little scion, that new little branch to get it to grow well. And what George was trying to do is put two or three different types of production fruit onto one rootstock. Yep. And I've also heard that that's it, – it's better to just plant three trees in one hole if you want to do that because if it's off of a rootstock, 
one of those all ultimately ends up dominating the rest. If it's all on one, you know, the, the naval might outpower the Arizona orange or, yeah. you know, your, your pink lady grapefruit might overpower your, you know, your yellow grapefruit. And that's absolutely true. And the other thing to remember is that your rootstock also will overpower all of them if you let that grow a little too much. And so that's why grafts are typically at the very base. So there's no green leaf coming from the rootstock at all. Uh, you want to trim any of that off and, and make sure that doesn't grow because it will overtake any graft that's on that rootstock. And they're usually pretty odd easy to identify because they generally just grow straight up and grow faster than the rest. Correct. That's that's the rootstock. Cut those off. And they'll have thorns on them. Yes. You know, a lot of times they'll have yes, thorns they on will. them. Either thorns or they'll have the trifoliate. So you have a different leaf pattern that looks like three little leaves connected together. And that's another indicator that I've got uh, my rootstock growing. And it will grow faster. I mean... It, Probably at least once a week, I'll go into a house, a property, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're trying to become citrus farmers. And they're, all their citrus trees, like, we haven't gotten anything worth eating on these trees. <laughs> and I go out there, and usually it's been totally overgrown by the rootstock. And what was the original graft is totally dead, just sitting in the middle and gone. So be careful with your grafting. Make sure you know what you're doing or at least have access to someone who does. And uh, another thing to remember is that YouTube is not a great source for learning how to do <laughs> grafting. And I mean that seriously. I just watched a video this last week of someone showing 20 different methods of grafting. Now, they only showed them doing little grafting with a cool grafting knife, different types of grafting knives. And they, they, these were like works of art grafting techniques. And I looked at all of them, was watching all these, and I said, I'll bet you only one of those is going to work. Because the rest of them, they didn't show the end effect of all these grafting techniques. They didn't show what happened at the end. They didn't, you know, they, they have like five of them all on one thing. It's like you can never grow a grafted tree with five things all like two inches apart. It's like oh, they're probably all going to fail if not kill the entire tree. But say they still showed it and it looked cool. It looks easy, but it's not founded in any real basis of science or even the result to prove its worth. So be careful with that. Be careful just seeing the front end and not being able to see the back end or the process in between to trust it. Otherwise, just find someone that's been in the industry a while that's done it a lot, and that's that's going to be a trusted source, and they'll do it right for you. And all your local nurseries you know, have plenty of selection of citrus that'll do great in your right. yard. Already grafted, ready to go. And what's do you have a preference on what size a tree? You know, I, They used to go gallons. I think they've changed that. You know, like 5-gallon, 10-gallon, 15-gallon, 25-gallon. I've, I've well, you still got that, but then you've got other caliper sizes. I mean, it just depends on how you measure it. Uh, or 24-inch box trees. I mean, when it comes to citrus, my favorite size to plant is actually more like a 24-inch box tree. And the reason I say that is because I'm going to have production in the year. Whereas if I'm just getting a 5-gallon citrus tree, if I'm going to get some production, it's going to be very meager. And it's going to take a long time for it to produce to the level that I really would like. And I think about all the time and expense of what I put in to try to keep that tree alive because they're harder to keep alive when they aren't shading themselves in the summertime. And they're a smaller, more spindly tree. I have to wrap the base. I got to do a lot of other things. And so I like starting with a little bit bigger citrus tree because it is a little slower growing in the beginning and it needs protection if it doesn't have enough foliage itself. So that's kind of my approach on citrus. But if I want multiple varieties and I've got a very small yard, I'm okay going with a much smaller tree. But just remember, you're really dealing with a, a very young tree in the citrus world that needs a lot of protection. It has really no bark. It's all green. And it does need that 
that protection because yeah. the sun will burn the, the bark. It'll very, burn the bark. It's very and, soft bark. Yep. It's very, very soft bark, and, and it'll when it burns the bark, it burns the leaves. And so you get a lot of burning on these younger trees, which is probably one of the main reasons why people aren't successful with citrus here in Arizona because they start with too small of a tree or it's just not protected well enough to survive. And with citrus, one of the great things about it is with all the different varieties, you could have produce almost year-round. Yeah. There's a couple months in that that extreme summer heat where we don't get production, but uh, they stay ripe on the tree for a long time. You don't get a lot of bird and insects eating them like you would your peaches or apples. And if you plant it right, you know one of those trees can be producing almost year-round. Yeah, and you can get year-round citrus here, I mean, without a doubt. You get the right types of lime trees and stuff, calamondins, uh, kumquats, you know, those ones will bridge the gap all through the summer months. And then you got more of your exotic types and stuff that are typically harvesting through the winter months. And for all you out there that have, have navel trees right now and you're wondering why are they still green? I mean, I'm usually picking my navels right now and we're handing them out to neighbors, you know, for, you know, Christmas gifts. They're not even close. You know, I've still got a week or two. And so they're about a month, month and a half behind because of the extending Slightly warmer temperatures we'd have on the highs, and it takes that colder temperatures for a lot of the navels, the Arizona sweets, even the grapefruits to really ripen up to their best flavor and color. It's got to get cold for them to get that color. Yeah, we're still picking lemons. <laughs> <laughs> and that's good. For those with lemons and lime trees, you're, you've got an extended season. I mean, we've seen some still producing and holding to the tree really well, and uh and, and I'll tell you this, you know, when it comes to citrus and the pests that might attack them, I know there's a lot of concern out there for the roof rat, especially in areas where roof rats are prevalent. Now, the roof rat typically only attacks a fruit that's rotting. It's not going to go after a fruit that's just barely on the new ripe side. So it's just important if you got roof rats or concerned about roof rats to be vigilant in the picking of your citrus off of your fruit trees on the early end of their production side. So as soon as they start to ripen up, it's good to start picking those things off. Don't let them rot on the tree. Don't let them sit there and wait until, you know, they, because as soon as they start rotting, that smell shifts a little bit. And that's when it's enticing enough for those roof rats to dig into those and, and eat the core out of that, that uh, fruit. And so pick them up off the ground as they fall too. Don't also let them the important. Ground. Yep. Don't let dead citrus lay on the ground. That's going to attract roof rats to you uh, from your neighbor's house. It may not be your house they're coming from, so don't take it personal. <laughs> you know they're just roaming around and they've been they've been uh, you know moving from house to house as people move because they hide in their boxes. I mean they didn't originate here, but they've moved here from us, and so let's not uh, feed their growth. <laughs> <laughs> now. We've been talking a lot about citrus primarily in this, but you can also graft apple trees, peach trees, you know. Yeah, and those are a little more picky on on the right variety to the right family. It's like, you know, apricot types. You can do a lot of the apricot types on an apricot. You can do a lot of the peach types on a peach. Uh, But, you know, you you can't do a pear on a peach, you know. yeah, I wouldn't recommend doing a plum on a peach, but a plum on an apricot is possible. You know, those kind of things that you just take into consideration. But the same rules still apply. Whatever graft you put onto it, there may be become a more dominant variety. The I think the record, world record for a, uh, a, a productive uh, stone fruit tree is 22 different grafts <laughs> on, on, a, on a stone fruit tree. And so it has been done. And it's a, there's some beautiful, large specimen trees with 
you know dozens of grafts on them and uh but it's it's tricky it's you got to be a really good pruner be good at pruning to make sure it works right hi i'm ian hanley owner of pinpoint leak detection and repair you're listening to rosie on the house couple text questions to rifle through here for you real quick. I'm uh, going to start with this first one that just came in on orange trees. Uh, lost a lot of leaves this summer. Should I cut back after a few oranges have taken off? I normally do minimal pruning. Yeah, I'd, I'd still recommend minimal pruning if you lost a lot of leaves through the summer months because uh, the likely reason you lost the leaves is because there was probably too much light getting into the core of the tree, burning part of it, and then the leaves were dropping off of it. You know, And so it was kind of in a little bit of a shock, and so it's going to reconsolidate and try to start growing leaves closer in, whereas now the temperatures are nicer. You know, very minimal trimming. I would trim just on the outside of the tree a little bit in order to try to promote a little more growth rather than length of my branches. I want to get a little more girth. I want a thickness. Uh, I want to have branching lower in and denser into the tree just to help protect a tree that's likely lost some of those leaves. All right. Next one is some, uh, it sounds like this person just moved into a home. Okay. Because she's, she's a new owner of the tree, but it's 20 years old. So I, I, Seriously, that it's been transplanted. <laughs> it's probably moving into home. Tree's 20 years old. It's an ash tree uh, and wants to know watering procedures. Well, hopefully whatever the previous owner did is still in play. If that's the case, it's doing great. <laughs> so if it's gotten 20 years and it's not having any issues, then I'd keep what's there. But in general, here's kind of a rule of a, of a larger tree. As trees get bigger, the watering requirement is further from the base of the tree. So you may want to look at where the water emitters are, move them closer to where the drip zone is, which is close to the end of all the branching of the trees. That's where the water is needed most for the tree. And every time you water, you want to get a tree that that big, you want the water to get down about 36 inches minimum into the ground. You want it to perk down in and you can do some soil tests, probing to then make sure it's getting 36 inches each watering. And then the frequency is going to be once the top inch up to two inches on an ash tree is dry, then you deep water it again down to a minimum of that 36 inches. So it's going to be a, a slow deep watering for a tree that large it may be overnight in terms of it could be eight hours of watering to get it to the depth at the at the range that you've got on a very slow drip scenario you don't want to unless you got flood irrigation so that's another question to be wondering is if you've got flood irrigation that's a different pattern entirely um and so make sure i'd, I'd connect with a, a a good professional you can go to agriscaping.com we've got some great pros that you can get there i know through the tree pros that they've got and rosie on the house they've got a lot of people all over the valley that can help out with that too highly recommend checking out rosie on the house to get those professionals because a tree that big if there is a change in the previous system you're going to want to ma- make sure it's double checked because you don't want to lose a beautiful specimen like that that's 20 years of growth it's like losing a kid that's not healthy or fun <laughs> And not fun starting over. No, you don't want to start over with a beautiful tree like that. Now, wrapping up this final segment here, uh, watering in general. Each tree, you know, citrus takes more than orange, but nothing is as thirsty as a pecan. Right. Uh, where do I, you know, and then you got the ash tree, you got your desert mesquites. You know, the desert adaptive ones, you really don't 
this time of year, you shouldn't have to do anything for them. Right, especially if they've already established themselves. If you're planting it now, you may need to kind of wean it off. So you, you have to water it. If you, you're planting a new tree right now, even a desert-adapted one, you're going to need to keep it on a similar schedule that the nursery was putting it on first. And then you back it off until you get it down to just maybe once a week. And then it's next year, you pretty much don't have to do anything with it. And it's going to be more established and it can handle and grow just based on regular rain that we get here or irregular rain as it would be. (laughs) (laughs) So, but what about water production for, you know, citrus trees that we're still expecting to produce? Do we still need to be dumping it on heavy for uh, the tree to make that, you know, navel orange juicy? Well, it it is definitely helpful. It'll help make sure the rind's not too thick. You know, the rinds will thicken up a little bit too much if they don't get enough water. Similar rule applies. I'd go two inches of dry before I water again, but make sure I'm still getting to at least 24 inches on a citrus. I don't need to get down to 36 on most citrus trees because their root densities are just higher and they're more condensed closer to the tree. But uh, that's more the kind of rule of thumb for our citrus. We do need to let them dry out a little bit. I even like to see a little bit of cracking on the soil top because most of our citrus trees are in native type soils they got a little clay before I would then water it again and that actually increases its willingness to produce fruit for you if you water them more too consistently you actually get much less production on your citrus trees they're too happy they don't need any uh, progeny or whatever they don't need any fruit they don't have a, a, a sense or desire for that and that's been a common theme that we get from people that have citrus trees that aren't producing a lot of fruit is because they haven't stressed them enough and so a little bit of stress on a citrus tree actually does them some good, and it has everything to do with the watering schedule. Now, what about the deciduous ones that are going dormant right now, the peaches and apples? I mean, is it water doing anything, or do I just shut those stations off? So the water for a deciduous tree losing its leaves, what I want to make sure is in effect is that my cambium layer is still healthy. And so I'm only going to be watering it enough to keep the cambium layer. And so, and, and that's like a, a light jacket that's around the, the interior of the tree. It's where it's green. If you scratch the bark off a little bit, you find the green layer. That part you want to always have still be green. You want it to be plump. Um, but obviously you don't have any leaves to water. And so to know that that's happening is just to know that I've got a little bit of moisture that exists in, the, in, the, in and around the roots, you know, a couple inches down. If I've got some moisture in there, it's sufficient. If it's dry two inches down, then I might want to deep water it again, but again, slow. But I may only need to water it once a month at this point for any of deciduous trees, or not at all. If this, if the rain that comes in does sufficient for it, and it really only needs like an inch a month when it's uh, dormant, and that's that's basically all it would need. All right, we got about 40 seconds left here. Give me, give me a little update on the... Queen Creek Botanical Gardens. Well, things are moving along really fast with all the amenities. We're just waiting on a date that we can open it. If you want to know more about it and get on our list, uh, go to agriscaping.com or qcgardens.org to get on our list to get the emails on what we'll be opening up next. Tours will be starting soon. And Crossroads. Uh, That'd be Riggs and Ellsworth uh, right next to the Queen Creek Equestrian Center and Fat Cats right between those two. Justin Rahner of Agriscaping, thanks for spending your Saturday morning with us.